Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks for joining us today for another episode where we're going to expand our brains and learn a little bit more about what this human animal is. Yes, we are getting into psychology today with Maurice Schweitzer, author of the new book, Friend and Foe. When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. Maurice Schweitzer is a professor of operations, information, and decisions at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. His research focuses on emotions, ethical decision-making, and the negotiation process. In fact, he teaches negotiations and advanced negotiations in Wharton's Executive Education MBA and undergrad programs. So in our episode today, we're covering a few things, right? We're covering his work with negotiations because I feel like that's an interesting area we haven't covered a lot of, the psychology behind negotiations, and even more so, what does that say to us as humans? You know, the way we interact with others, and then we get into his book, Friend and Foe. When do you want to cooperate? When are you competing? I just love the idea of social dynamics, right, where these social creatures, yet there's so much behind the scenes that goes on. It's so intricate. Some of it's conscious, some of it's subconscious. 
And then the other thing we talk a little bit about is emotions, which in general, I mean, <laughs> we could take up obviously 20 podcasts talking about emotions and what they are, but it's always great to get somebody on and uncover why we do what we do, why we are who we are, and how we operate in this world, and perhaps learn a little bit on how to do so better. One thing I did want to discuss, specifically after the last episode with Cybabe, is, you know, one of the reasons we do this podcast is to expand our minds, expand our knowledge set. And especially in this day and age with all the, you know, polarization of people through politics and beliefs and things, I feel like people just get too set in their ways sometimes. And they say, well, if I felt like this at one point in time, no matter what, I need to continue thinking along those lines, right? It's the idea of it's terrible to be a flip-flopper when really perhaps it just means you've learned new information. And so as part of this show, I'm really not having conversations to debate, to say, hey, you know, I mean, obviously, if there's something egregious that I know about, I'll, I'll kind of go into that. But oftentimes, look, I'm not an expert on these topics. We cover everything. I want to pick people who I feel are researched, who the social proof says that, you know, they're they're doing things that are reputable. They have a reputable background. And then I just want to dig in, try and uncover things, and then I'll go study it afterwards. How do I still feel about that? Did this uncover new information for me? And that's what makes me a better person. So I just want to say that I hope you all feel the same. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Head on over to iTunes. We'd love a review from you. Five years in, if you haven't left us a review and you've listened, come on, hook us up with a little something. You can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com and on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you hear an episode that you enjoy, tweet at the author. Throw him a little shout out. All right, going to get into this episode with Maury Schweitzer as we discuss emotions, psychology, negotiation, and his new book, Friend and Foe. Enjoy. Maurice, first, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I'm really excited to to talk to you, to learn more about your work, and to, to get into your brand new book, uh, Friend and Foe. Congratulations on that. I know it just came out. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So first, I want to talk about your background. I am a big fan of people with fancy letters after their name, and I know, um, you know you're a professor at one of the most prestigious universities. And so um, I kind of want to get into that, learn about your background and what you teach and what you do. Sure. I'm a professor at the Wharton School. I teach negotiations. And yeah, I don't know if these letters are the sort of fanciest you come across. But uh, yeah, I have a PhD. So my my background is in basically it's applied psychology. I'm interested in judgment, decision-making, and how we navigate our social world. So how we get along with other people. And what's fun about negotiations is that we're constantly both cooperating and competing. And I know that's a lot of the focus of of your book. We'll get into the book in a little bit. First, I wanted to know kind of what what interested you about this field and what was the path you took to get there? Because I know our listeners, the number one subject that they enjoy um, by a, a vote that they took, 
obviously not all inclusive, but pretty good sample size, is things like the brain, psychology, why we do what we do, etc. So for somebody who kind of does that, I wanted to learn um, why your interest and, and how you got here. Sure. I, I mean, I like a lot of things, I think I sort of stumbled into it. I was I was always interested in how we make decisions. So I came at this as, you know, how do we think and make decisions and judgments about other people, about things in our world? How do we navigate things like risk? And I, I stumbled into negotiations. Um, when I was a doctoral student, I was a teaching assistant for a negotiations course. And it really opened my mind. And it was so fun because we make a lot of systematic mistakes just trying to make decisions in a quiet place by ourselves. So just in our own minds, there are some mistakes that we make. But when we interact with other people, well, that's when the wheels can really come off. That is, funny things happen when we interact with other people. Sometimes we do it beautifully, and sometimes we see conflict escalate. We see people deceive others in ways where we end up ruining the relationship. There, there's some really interesting things that happen. And, and so I've really gone in the direction of uh, studying emotions studying trust and deception and and negotiations more broadly because it just captivates me. I, I have a couple of questions. I mean, it's such a broad topic. So studying emotions, I mean, how do you study that? And, and what, given your background, what do you break those down to? Given that I believe, and I'm no PhD, but that they are such a strong force in every aspect we do. I mean, everything we do, I believe, comes down to how it's going to make us feel, how we perceive it's going to make us feel, or how it might make someone else feel. I want to know, A, is that true? And B, what are they in your opinion? Well, yeah, so, so I agree with you. Emotions are incredibly important. Often, emotions are a summary statistic. And here's what I mean by that. When I ask you something complicated, like suppose we're shopping for homes, we look at different houses, uh, or suppose we're interviewing different candidates, I'll ask you a question like, oh, did you like that house? Or do you like this candidate? And the response is likely to be informed by how you feel. Like, oh, I had a really good feeling about that. Or, yeah, overall, I really liked that candidate. And what we're doing is uh, we're using emotions to really integrate a lot of different information. It's so hard for us to consciously and systematically process all the different pieces of information. We often summarize that into one simple dimension, which is, hey, how do I feel about that? And, and sometimes it's another person like, oh, I, I met somebody we could engage in a partnership or we could... Uh, do a project together. And sometimes we'll say, well, I just wasn't feeling quite right about that. Or there was something that was kind of off or, oh, it just clicked and we went forward. And it's these emotions that are driving us. Now, you ask something different, which is, how do I study emotions? And, and one thing that I like about emotions is that they're very powerful. They do powerfully move us to do great things and to do terrible things. And they're all around us. That is, we'd like 
to be sometimes like to think of ourselves as unemotional, almost like Spock, the purely rational person inside. And yet that's not the reality. That is the reality is we're buffeted by these emotions. They push us one way or another. And because these emotions move us, it's incumbent upon us to really understand how we're feeling and what these emotions are doing. So one of the things I always wonder is, you know, with emotions, there's a lot of talk about there on kind of regulating them or understanding them, letting them pass. Uh, You know, a lot of the things regarding meditation and really this this thought that emotions don't need to steer us per se. Right. They don't need to be the reason we act. You know, do you talk about that? Do you teach about that? And, And if so, what are your recommendations? Should we, how should we try to handle some of our more intense emotions? Yeah, I do teach about it. And here's some of the ideas that I teach about. Uh, one, the first step is to really recognize how we're feeling. So we want to be able to recognize how we're feeling. We want to recognize how other people around us are feeling. So when I go to my boss, I want to be sensitive to how that boss is feeling. If I can look at their facial expressions, their their behavior, things that they've said, I could begin to inform how they might be feeling. And that might give me a sense of, hey, is this a good time to ask for a raise or not? Or is this a good time to broach this subject for, for you know a new project or switching to take over new responsibilities? There could be more opportune times than others. And as we understand other people's emotions and our own, we'll be better suited for navigating those those minefields. Mm. Now, related to that is uh, emotions aren't all bad. Uh, and you, you mentioned regulating emotions. Sometimes we want emotion. You can think about a coach. And a coach might try to fire up the team or a politician or a leader or like a union organizer, sometimes we try to get people fired up in some emotional way. And emotions can be very useful. Anger, for example, is very motivating. So if you're feeling angry, uh, you can take that anger out there into the field. You could take it uh, trying to, to organize a union, trying to get out the vote. It's motivating. People will expend more effort because they're feeling angry. Um, Or if we're feeling really happy, uh, we're going to have a sunnier sort of disposition. We're going to evaluate other things more favorably. That that the way we're feeling will color our judgment. Um, And if I'm upset about something else, I'm likely now to be more critical about something unrelated. So, So our emotions can be good, they can be bad. Uh, we want to be aware of them. And for those of us who are really emotionally intelligent, we can figure out how to shift our emotions and how to use and sort of channel emotional energy in ways that are, are helpful. Going back to the previous question and answer you gave where you were talking about, say, in an interview, oftentimes, what was the term you used? Emotions are... The, like summation or something? What, yeah. What, what, yeah. So almost like a summary statistic. So, yeah, summary so, statistic. Yeah. So, so we often 
yeah, we often refer to our feelings as as the summary, the sort of the the overall right. experience, and and it's a shorthand way of integrating a lot of information that would otherwise be pretty hard to to systematically integrate. Yeah, and I I love that descriptor because I mean I'm I, I love this field. I read a lot about it, and kind of what I've read is that we oftentimes will say that an action or a, an event happen for a reason, right? We will, we will place reason on it after the fact, although really it's a subconscious or, um, you know, emotional level that we're operating on. And that times those things often come from our, I guess, primitive brain. I don't want to tell the PhD what the truth is. This is just my knowledge, but like, so what I'm getting at is we sit down in an interview with somebody and they leave and we say, you know what? I like that guy. Like summa- this is a summation of all the information we gathered. I like that guy. Is it true that oftentimes that feeling is uh, we, we shouldn't trust it? I mean, it might just be that they're similar to us. They right. said something that resonated. They right. grew up in the same place, but really they're not the most qualified, etc. Right. Absolutely. So absolutely. So so when I said that these emotions, the way we feel is a summary statistic and it helps us make decisions, it does simplify our world. We can't hold all that information in our sort of working memory. But the emotions that we feel could definitely be leading us astray. So it could be that I found out some great news about a family member. Uh, it could be, I, you know, it's you know, it's about to be my birthday. Uh, there could be all kinds of things happening that could put me in a really great frame of mind. And other things that might be normatively irrelevant, that is, they shouldn't matter, like, I liked your accent, or we had some something in common, like we're both from the same town. Uh, you could be, you could have reminded me of an old friend. There could be other things that shift my feelings, it could be that you told a great joke. Um, there could be something that makes me feel like, oh, yeah, we kind of clicked. I really like this person. And it could be that I'm not going on the merits of the case. And it, it, you could imagine some other more qualified candidate. They happen to come in on a day when I got a flat tire, when I got into an argument with my spouse. And... I'm now just walking into this experience and I'm in a kind of bad mood and that bleeds into my and colors my evaluation. And so this more qualified candidate say, well, yeah, I just didn't feel that great about that candidate. That summary statistic is now being informed by things that aren't relevant. And so I could make bad decisions and our emotions can definitely lead us astray. Mm. Now let's take a break for a moment from our sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the only learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smart people. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. 
Lynda.com is for you. For listeners of this show, it's the problem solvers, the curious, people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn how to negotiate, build that new website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to Lynda.com and feed your curious mind. There's a few courses I really recommend on there, one being Growth Hacking Fundamentals. Another new one I just checked out is Learning to Be Assertive and Going Paperless Start to Finish. There's so many benefits to a lynda.com membership, such as watching and learning from top experts, streaming thousands of videos on demand, and learning at your own pace. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, anything you can think of, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to try something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for a free 10-day trial. It's free. Why not? That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smart people. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's a tough balance, I think, but perhaps we'll get into with the you know, friend and foe, how to, how to balance some of those. Last question I have before we do kind of touch on, or, you know, get into the idea of, of cooperation versus competition. Given that you study and one of the things you're most interested in social interactions, how we interact with everyone, you know, I see the world through the lens of communication. It's just uh-huh. what I'm good at, what I enjoy. Uh, I love talking to people. I do it for uh-huh. a living, etc. However, even for someone such as myself, which I feel like I'm pretty good at this communication aspect, it's really intense. Like it's, there's so many factors at play and right. we, we, we care so deeply about others, what they're thinking, how they make us feel, how we make them feel. I don't know. Do you, do you look at the science behind that? Is it just that we are social beings to, in order to evolve and live and grow and that that is something we will always have to deal with, kind of the difficulty almost in dealing with such complex creatures as ourselves. Well, yeah, it, that's interesting. Basically, um, in, our, in our book, Friend and Foe tackles that straight on. That is, the, we are hardwired to be social. In fact, one of the most severe forms of punishment is solitary confinement. When we're in solitary confinement, we lose touch with other people and our minds crave it so much that people who have been in solitary confinement for more than a few days begin to lose touch with reality. They begin to hallucinate. They become eventually unfit for social interaction. It basically breaks us. So we crave that social interaction. We crave being connected to other people and we're hardwired to be in social groups. So if we're hardwired to be in social groups, what that means is that we're hardwired to collaborate, to work with other people. But in every group, we're also competing for our place in a hierarchy, for, for, for resources, whether it's more food or material resources or attention, there's, there's this tension between cooperation and competition, and we're really hardwired to do both. Okay, so let's get into that. Friend and Foe is the book, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. And as I was kind of doing my research, at first I was like, well, it seems kind of intuitive, and believe me, 
things that are intuitive, I feel still there's a, a big place to, to go in further. But and when I say intuitive, it's in like, yeah, sometimes you want to cooperate, sometimes you want to compete. But then I realize, wait, I am totally missing the boat. It's you kind of have to do both in the moment, right? That's right. So so the idea is we often kind of simplify our world. We talked about the decision making we do in ourselves. We often simplify our world to think of people as friends, as foes, uh, family or not family. Um, we, we like to categorize things. And when we blur categories, our mind sometimes struggles with it. And I think we see this sort of recently with gender. We grow up thinking, okay, here are the boys and, and they're the girls. They line up in different lines. They use different restrooms. Um, and then when we see transgender people it begins to challenge our categorization system. And it's actually a big leap um, to begin to shift how we think and how we categorize the world. And the same is true about friends and foes. And what we're talking about in this book, our central, our central theme is that we do both all the time. So as, as spouses, we're cooperating and competing. Sometimes we go back and forth, but the idea is that we're in a relationship that is intrinsically cooperative and competitive. You know, what do we need to know about utilizing that balance? I guess the better question is, what is a typical area in which the average person, through your research, messes this up and gets it wrong and therefore doesn't come out with perhaps their best uh, outcome? Well, we can think about two, two kinds of mistakes. One is uh, we can be too competitive. So there's some people that see the world as foes and they're out to compete with people. And as we compete and perhaps compete too often, we end up making foes. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We end up making these foes and we miss out on opportunities to collaborate. And sometimes it could be as innocuous as posting things on Facebook, uh, sharing, oversharing about our vacations, um, or you know, we just remodel our kitchen. We want to show people our remodeled kitchen, and we might just be kind of happy about it. And when we win that coveted promotion, people often tell us things that aren't exactly true. They'll say things like, "Oh." I'm so happy for you. You really deserved it. And they might be feeling something quite different, which is, hey, I really wanted that promotion. It bothers me that you got it, and it's going to bother me for a while. We often misappreciate how, how fragile our relationships are. That is, we're constantly comparing ourselves with people around us, and we can easily turn people from friends into foes, we can trigger too much competition. Now, the flip side of that is uh, some of us are really too trusting. And when we're too trusting, we make ourselves vulnerable to exploitation. Um, and there are a lot of cases, basically, deception works only because people are very trusting. And there are some kinds of populations, like the elderly, for example, that are quite vulnerable. But but sometimes we, we don't appreciate that this... This is a balancing act that we need to engage in. And if we're cooperating only or we think of somebody as sort of only our friend, we can make ourselves vulnerable and we don't we don't end up 
appreciating there's also a competition that we have to navigate. And that's great. I think right there we define almost define the problem, right? That there's there's too much of either, and by leaning to one versus the other. Uh, you don't get that outcome. And I think everybody kind of knows the person that's super competitive and um, they oftentimes will either steer clear of them. They won't have these, for for me personally, I won't go into these really great discussions because all they want to do is argue about it. And I'm Uh really trying to seek the understanding. Um, But on the flip side, if you are too trusting, you can be taken advantage of. I, I read in my research that, uh, those that are too trusting, and this is coming from what I read of, of your book, those that are too trusting oftentimes, and, and if they're less competitive, therefore, they don't gain the power or the respect oftentimes that they need in order to achieve their goals. Exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that is, I think when we're, we recognize that in all of our relationships, so with our spouses, our siblings, our coworkers, we're constantly engaging in cooperation and competition. We're both friends and foes. And, and when we appreciate that um, and we think about constructs like trust, we think about the comparisons we're constantly making with our peers and our, our siblings, when we think about all these dynamics, we begin to uh, realize that, hey, there's some actions I might take and I really need to gauge a perspective taking. I need to think about the hierarchy here. Um, so, so, for example, we talk about how every social group throughout history, whether it's a group of people going out for dinner, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your family, every social group that we can think of is characterized by hierarchy. That is, there's somebody that's exerting more influence than somebody else, even in organizations that are trying to be flat organizations we think about holacracy, everybody's equal. Uh, it turns out that there is, no, there is no social group where everybody is equal. There's always some hierarchy. And, and as that emerges, we jockey for position or we understand how our group functions. Um, and, and inherent in that is this cooperation within a group, perhaps competition between groups, as well as competition within the group to figure out where we fit. Now that we've kind of clearly defined that, I think we have a pretty good understanding of the issue and uh, what that can lead to. I know we can't answer it in a short podcast. And um, from the things I've read about your book, I mean, and and there's some stories that I read about that are fantastic, real life stories that we might get into. But if we could summarize what are some ways people who are just listening can implement strategies to strike that balance, to get more of what they want as well as what those closest to them want? Yeah, well, I think part of it um, really begins with perspective taking. And uh, in the book, we talk about this, this simple exercise. So you can imagine, uh, for anybody listening, uh, take, your, uh, take your dominant hand and take a finger, so for most people it's your, your right hand, and put your finger up on your forehead and uh, quickly draw the capital letter E. So that is draw a capital letter E on your forehead. Now, if you've done this, you'll appreciate there are actually two different ways we could have drawn that capital letter E. One way we could have done it is so that when somebody's looking at us, 
that E looks correct to them. The other way we could have drawn it is that E would look right to us, but it would look backwards to other people. And we find that people who are good at perspective taking will draw it so that it, it faces other people the right way. Uh, and people who are not as good in perspective taking, they end up doing it in a more self-focused way. Now, what's interesting about perspective taking is that it's only by taking other people's perspectives that we can truly begin to understand what other people need. And when we do that, we can figure out ways for us both to do better. So often when we're just pursuing our own self-interest, we're ignoring other people and we do less well at figuring out what other people are thinking and how the world's working around us. So I mentioned, for example, we sometimes overshare information about our vacations or our, our remodeled kitchen. Uh, we can do things that trigger envy in other people. And as a result, they're less collaborative, they're less helpful with us later. So we're making them miserable and they're going to be less helpful to us going forward. The idea about perspective taking is that um, it's an effortful, active process. That is, we have to work at it. So it's for us to take on this challenge of saying, okay, here's the way I'm seeing things. Let me see if I can really put myself in somebody else's shoes. What would that look like? And, and ironically, as people climb up the social ladder, the more powerful people become, the less good they are at taking perspective. So this, this e-test, as well as many others that have been run, uh, as we discussed, people who are high in power end up doing less well at this. And so one thing that was funny, when we were actually pitching the book, we did this uh, when we were in the random house offices, and we, we asked people to draw the capital letter E, and completely consistent with the results that we have found in the past, the senior people drew the self-focused E, the junior people drew the other-focused E, showing that basically low-power people are taking other people's perspectives, high-power people basically quit. They're like, hey, I don't have to take other people's perspectives. And that can end up getting us into trouble. So one way that high-power people end up falling from power is by, is by losing touch failing to take perspective, uh, and they end up engaging in uh, mistakes. And I mean, Sepp Blatter, for example, is this sort of iconic exemplar. Here's somebody that had so much power, kept getting reelected, and he acted with impunity. And power does a couple of things. One is it makes us less good at perspective taking. It makes us feel like we're invincible. And so we end up taking risks we're acting on our, on our impulses and desires, and we can end up doing things that are terribly wrong. And in that moment, it seemed like, hey, uh, I can get away with almost anything. And now a quick message from this week's sponsor. Have you heard of Schoolhouse? Schoolhouse is a New York-based and globally inspired brand design agency. When subjective experiences challenge you as an individual, dare you to take creative risks, and ask individuals to define the collective versus the collective defining the individual, life and experience serve as your schoolhouse. This is why Schoolhouse is about finding your brand truth and not just your brand story. At Schoolhouse, it's not only what they do, 
It's how they do it that makes the biggest impact. Authenticity, collaboration, and expression keep Schoolhouse sharp, excited, and honest about the work they do. They know the value of client relationships based on quality and trust. They are Schoolhouse, the branding brand. Learn more at www.weareschoolhouse.com and follow us daily through Instagram at at schoolhouseNYC. Again, to find out more, go to weareschoolhouse.com today. And now back to the show. And I would imagine those in power feel like they got there because of their own intelligence and abilities, even though oftentimes that's, pro- you know, that's rarely the case. But we like to think we get to where we are because of how great we are. And then you think, so my perspective carries more weight because it got me here. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. In fact, there's a lot of research showing that um, people who have been very successful, they attribute their success disproportionately <laughs> to their own smarts and effort. Yeah. So people like to think, yeah, I got here because I pulled myself up uh on my own and i think we fail to appreciate how how important the environment is how important all the help is we got along the way and and it turns out that you know everybody who's successful is it's a combination it's a combination of our environment other people helping us luck often and our hard work and perhaps our talents but it's really that combination and we underappreciate how how much these other factors played. And as a result, you're exactly right. We tend to underappreciate the opinions, perspectives of others who have been perhaps less successful, at least so far. So funny. I think about like I gamble on sports. And for the longest time, until I became aware of this phenomenon, every time I would win, I would think, God, I'm smart. And then every time I'd lose, be like the ref screwed this up or the guy who gave me the tip was an idiot. Exactly. Um, exactly just, right. Yes. So, so clearly exactly, not the case. <laughs> right. So that's exactly it. And the thing is, the problem is that there's so many people be- that believe that exactly. It's it, it, it's work for us to appreciate. Hey, you know what? I was kind of lucky here. Uh-huh. Or um, yeah, I go back in time, and when it's worked out, when I attribute it to something other than my own sort of natural talents, it's a little bit disquieting Mm -hmm. how how do we build that perspective i mean you know you you draw the e on the the part of your head that and and you do it so that you can read it and then you feel bad about yourself even though i'm not saying that's what you're insinuating but i think it's just kind of natural how do we fix that should we fix that yeah so so first I i wouldn't feel bad about it uh but i would i would argue that What's important for us to do is appreciate that that perspective taking is effortful, that it's an investment in time for us to think about other people's perspectives, to really appreciate how different those other perspectives can be. And we want to get out of our own sort of minds. One way to do that is to is to really listen more actively to other people. So through the crisis negotiation literature, there's uh, there's something that they've developed called active listening, where we're asking questions, we're asking people to follow up and elaborate on those questions, and we're spending more time being quiet ourselves. 
the idea that we're really going to listen to other people. And the active part is it also involves mirroring. You talked about communication before that one key idea that we can engage in as we're communicating with other people is mirroring. So somebody else leans in, you lean in. They put their hands on their hips, you put your hands on the hips. You echo the gist of what they just said. You can do things that demonstrate that you're paying attention. And when we focus on really listening to other people, we're going to gain information about what they what they're thinking and what their perspective really is. Yeah, I've definitely heard of the mirroring thing. And luckily, uh, what I've read is, you know, it either comes naturally or it doesn't. And I think I kind of tend to do it. But that also places me, I don't want to make this about me. I'm just saying it places me on the, uh, I cooperate a little too too often. And so I, I want to talk about that because I think regardless of what side you fall on, uh, let's take negotiations, for example. Uh-huh. People, okay, you tell me if I'm right. The vast majority of people prefer cooperation over competition slash tension. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I think I think that's true. So most people view negotiations with apprehension. They think of negotiations as combative, difficult experiences. They're worried about ways in which it could, it, they could go badly. And yeah, most of us prefer the cooperative thing of just, you know, sort of skipping the negotiation. So given, I know you study negotiation a lot, you, you teach on it, you've been right. given awards for your teaching. So let's help us out with that. First, the psychology of negotiation from the aspect of somebody who dislikes it. Um, how do you, how do you view it in a way, or do you view it in a way that, look, you don't need to dislike it. It's not about winning. It's just, I don't, I don't know. Something else. So, so here are a couple of ideas. One, uh, for some people, it really helps when you reframe it as, hey, you're asking rather than negotiating. So what I want you to do is, you know, talk with this vendor, uh, talk with your boss. And what you want to do is ask questions and maybe you want to ask for something that you need. So that is we're reframing it not as a negotiation, but as an ask. For many people that are very hesitant to negotiate, uh, I'll tell them the following advice. I want you to think about negotiating not for your own behalf, on your own behalf, but for others. That is, if you're negotiating for your kids, if you're negotiating for your group, would that change how you orient yourself to negotiation? And for many people, and this, and often there's a gender divide here, so a lot of women are often very apprehensive about negotiations. We talk about gender differences uh, a lot in our book, and, and one is the propensity to initiate a negotiation. Um, and, and when I tell some of my female students, I say, hey, yeah, you're telling me you're really apprehensive about negotiating. Suppose I, I said, look, uh, you're negotiating not for you, but for your family. And imagine I said, yeah, uh, you, you're getting paid less than the market wage, if you got paid more, I say, look, imagine that I said all of that money is going to go to a fund, a college fund for your kid. How do you feel about asking for that money now? And all of a sudden, somebody who is kind of tentative is like, well, I don't really need that money. Why would I sort of, you know, be greedy for it? I say, well, look, uh, if this is money for your kid, um, what, you know, how, how do you think about it now? Like, oh, well, now I should get paid the market wage. 
So, so we can think about these negotiations differently. And another idea that I, I'd offer is uh, it really helps before we negotiate to build some rapport with the person we're about to deal with. So that is, we don't jump in and go from zero to 60, just jumping into that negotiation, but, but rather we start off by building some common ground. We could talk about sports, we could talk about the weather, we could talk about local politics, we talk about family issues. We talk about something before we dive into the task at hand. And that transforms that relationship from just a pure transaction to something that seems a little more collegial, a little bit more like friends, where now when I'm asking you things, I'm, I'm asking for information, I'm asking about flexibility, uh, we're going to see people become more open, we're going to see people become more flexible in ways that really help us reach a better outcome. Well, thank you for that. I know there's a bunch of people out there who uh, you know, may, might be going to buy a car or a house and they say, okay, I can look at it a little differently now. So definitely useful. Again, it comes down to perspective taking. One of the things I want to ask you, and I think this is a little teaser into a lot of things included in your book are real life situations, stories, um, you know, tidbits that I know the listeners would enjoy. One that I read, although I didn't read the answer, is, is you answer the question, why do husbands gain weight during their wives' pregnancy? Uh-huh. Yeah. I, need, I need to ask you that because uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, my my son is now – he's almost six months old. Um, okay. And I, I definitely put on about a noticeable seven to ten pounds. And, and the reason it was so weird is because I've weighed the same amount since I graduated college, you know, over ten years ago. And, and so to put that on, and I don't really care. Like I'm, I could use probably to gain a few pounds, but I was like, wait, there's an answer to that. So I'd love to hear it. <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on your son. Thank you. Um, here, um, here's the broad point. We compare ourselves with people around us and we do that constantly as we're constantly comparing ourselves. So if I were to ask you, do you make a good salary? Do you drive a nice car? Do you live in a nice apartment? When we answer those questions, our mind almost instinctively races to comparisons. The same is true about our weight. So when we think, do I weigh the right amount? Uh, do I have the right amount of food on my plate? We're thinking about... Uh, the people around us who are profoundly influencing our judgment, and it could be consciously or non-consciously. There have been studies looking at weight in general. If one of your friends becomes obese, that significantly increases your likelihood of becoming obese. We've seen that in large-scale time-intensive studies where we do, we're, we're definitely influenced by what our friends are doing. And the same is true when you're living with your wife. Your wife is growing. She's getting bigger. She's eating for two. And we implicitly begin to think about, well, what should I be doing? What's the right <laughs> amount for me to be eating? Uh, how careful should I be about eating this or eating that? We end up uh, – I mean – 
the funny thing is men end up putting on weight and and the surprising number of people uh, end up buying a new paternity wardrobe. Um, there's even a medical term for this that it happens so often uh, that we that we end up seeing you know people exactly like you. Um, <laughs> your weight's influenced by the people around you, and again, it comes back to this so the power of comparisons. That's amazing, and and again, just to let others know, I mean, there's all types of these kind of these situations in the book um, that we just won't give away. So things like, why do you want to go last on American Idol? (laughs) You know, like, I I think that's fantastic. Well, Maurice, I I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, I am excited to to jump into your book and hopefully uh, learn a little bit more on the competition scale and and negotiation. Maurice, again, thanks so much. The book is Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and how to succeed at both. We will link to your book at smartpeoplepodcast.com as well as uh, some other places. Where else might you write or can we find you? Can listeners find you, et cetera? Uh, sure. Uh, we, uh, I'm, a, I'm on Twitter, uh, M-E underscore Schweitzer. And I, uh, we have a recent uh, Harvard Business Review piece. Um, we have a website for friend and foe for our book. Um, and I'd welcome any comments. You can look me up, um, through the warden school and I'd welcome feedback, uh, feedback on our book. And I'm really excited to share the ideas in it. Fantastic. Well, again, Maurice, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate it and enjoy the conversation. Great. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Maurice Schweitzer. Don't forget you can pick up his book, Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase it on Amazon, please use our smartpeoplepodcast.com Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. It's the easiest way to support the show. It comes to no cost to you. You just go to the link It sends you over to Amazon and you do your shopping as normal. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or review over there. We truly do appreciate hearing all the feedback that each and every one of you have about the show. So please submit those reviews or if you want to reach out to the show, shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at Smart People Pod. We've had a bunch of awesome conversations with listeners on the show that have just asked general podcasting questions. They've wanted to start their own podcast. They might wonder about equipment or what websites they need to use. Chris and I love podcasting. We love talking about it. So please feel free to shoot us any questions that you may have about that too. That being said, I do want to give a little shout out to one of our good friends, Robbie Dowling, who started a podcast called Too Deep Hokies Under the Influence. It's a Virginia Tech podcast where him and his buddy Pete talk about all things Virginia Tech football. So if you're a college football fan, a Virginia Tech football fan, go ahead, give their show a listen, and tell them Smart People Podcast sent you. All right, that's it for the plugs this week. We've got some great episodes coming up. Make sure you stay tuned, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>